Hello, everyone, and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and next to me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you today? I'm really good today. Me too, and I'm excited because today we have the great pleasure of speaking with Mark Mahaney, who calls himself Wall Street's oldest and longest lasting technology analyst. For 25 years, he has tracked and talked to the best technology firms, making thousands of stock calls. And Mark is the author of Nothing But Net, which was published in October 2021 by McGraw-Hill. Why have we chosen this book? So at Red Eye, we specialize in tech and life science companies, and uh, I'm covering technology stocks as an analyst. So, I mean, I find Mark's book highly relevant for myself, both both as an analyst, but also as an investor, which, which I think is really important for our listeners. We also want to thank our, our listener and Twitter follower, Rene Selman, who encouraged us to select Nothing But Net for the podcast. And how does the book fit with Red Eye's quality rating? So Nothing But Net summarizes Mark Mahaney's top 10 lessons from his experience of covering tech stocks, and many of the lessons overlap with our checklist to determine the quality of a business. The book has specific chapters on the importance of product innovation, total addressable market, or TAM, and value proposition, which are all included as checklist questions in our business rating. And uh, parts of our people category are represented by the chapter on management. And in the end, our third pillar, financials, is visible in Mark's chapter named Revenue Matters More Than Anything. We are excited to have the author of Nothing But Net on the show to increase our knowledge of successful tech investing. Here comes our conversation with Mark Mahaney. So hello, Mark, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So where are you today? I'm in San Francisco today in my home office. Nice. And to begin, how did your passion for investing start? I uh, was first interested in investing because I was first interested in this internet sector. I was uh, on college campuses in 1996 when uh, first uh, browsers or web directories, things like Yahoo and Excite, uh, came out. I thought it was uh, I thought it was fascinating. There was a service way back then called Pointcast, which almost offered like real time news. If you downloaded the app every time you went into the computer center, I thought that was great. Um, uh, I tried out this thing called Amazon at the time. Uh, then I was in uh, business school uh, when this uh, report came out called the Internet Report uh, by a famed um, sell side analyst named Mary Meeker. Uh, uh, and uh, I remember bicycling to the Barnes and Noble in downtown Philadelphia to buy that report. So there's a lot of irony in that statement, but it's true. And uh, I got a uh, worked in management consulting around uh, the internet sector for a year or two. But then Mary's associate left to go to work at Amazon. Is still there 25 years later. He's done phenomenally well. I'm very happy for him. Uh, and I got a chance to work with her. So that's what really brought me to um, to investing. I was particularly interested in the internet sector, and I decided I really I really wanted to get to the financial at the center the Wall Street epicenter of the internet. I thought that was working with Mary Meeker at Morgan Stanley, and I did that for five years, and it was a fascinating experience. And now over the last 25 years, you've seen the birth and growth of this entirely new industry that has become the most valuable in the world. And during this time, you have met the leaders of the most innovative and successful tech companies and also the best investors. So we are curious if there are any epic moments that stand out for you. Um. Well, let's see. Uh, 
Um, I uh, very much appreciate in getting to know a little bit uh, Jeff Bezos uh, over the years in small investor group meetings. Here's a person with boundless energy, extremely uh, intelligent uh, and uh, truly passionate about uh, about his business. Um, uh, so that that was one of my the encounters with him were. Um, were uh, were extremely memorable. There were just one-offs here or there. This guy named Mark Cuban, who helped found this company called Broadcast.com, and then sold it to Yahoo. And then I think very uh, at just about the peak of the dot-com bubble in 2000, 2001, and then I think um, took his position and collared it in a way that even though Yahoo stock price fell dramatically, he didn't lose any of those gains, and now he's the successful sports owner um uh the dallas mavericks basketball team and uh he's on shark tank so uh it was uh, fun being around him at the at the very beginning and um and then along the way just meeting and getting to meet some of the uh, other entrepreneurs i've really enjoyed um chatting with investors uh along the way uh, those investors that are still in the business that i've worked with uh, because they invested early on in some of these names. Um, it's been great to celebrate their successes and uh, talk through ideas with them. People like Bill Miller, who was at Leg Mason for many years, very early uh, bull on uh, Amazon and correct bull on Amazon, although he went through a lot of volatility with that stock for a couple of years there. So those are those are some of the memories that come to mind. It's it's the it's the entrepreneurs and the long term investors who've been very successful with this in the book. I refer to some calls I had uh, with um, Peter Lynch. Some some of your some of you will remember some of your listeners will remember him. He was a uh, uh, he is an investment guru. Worked at Fidelity, ran their largest fund, and then published a couple of books. One of which was One Up on Wall Street. That book actually was one of the inspirations for me writing my book and one of my favorite moments was getting a phone call out of the blue from Peter Lynch back in roughly 2010. He wanted to talk about Groupon, one of the stocks I covered. So that to me was just, um, you know, the, one of the greatest portfolio managers of all time wanted to call me talk about internet stocks. So it was just a riveting 30 minutes and his style of just question, 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 uh, and digging deeper into into the details of uh, potential investment was just fascinating to be a part of the process of. So those are some of my favorite moments. Well, um, I'm envious of many of those encounters. Uh, and uh, I mean, reading your book, it's it's filled with uh, stories about uh, companies that, that have been successful and, and not so successful. But I want to first ask, what, what led you to actually write the book? I enjoy writing. That's, that's true. That's true. And uh, I wanted to sort of... Um, uh, have a there's a little bit of memoir in there as you know from having read it. I enjoyed recalling the stories, recalling um, the stock calls I made, the good and the bad, recalling some of the people I met, uh, and um, uh, so yeah. Part of it was I wanted to just have something like a I wanted to write down my story of the internet, and then I also though wanted to step back and say I've covered this sector for 25 years. Peter Lynch wrote a wonderful book that helped um, Main Street investors invest. And I wanted to do the same thing, except for investors looking at growth tech stocks. And by the way, 
that's pretty much what Peter Lynch do. He didn't say that in his, it, it's not in the title of his book, but you know, he's really focused. He was focused was always on finding high quality, high growth companies, I, you know, and uh, high growth companies at reasonable valuations, high quality, high growth at reasonable valuations. And I kind of do the same thing. Um, I don't focus on the, I never have focused on energy stocks, um, you know, airline industry, um, uh, you know, dividend paying stocks. I've really just focused on that corner of the market, but I think it's a really important one for all investors to have at least some exposure to, which is, um, you know, high growth, um, high, uh, you know, uh, tech stocks. And so that's what it was. It was the desire to kind of look back and retell some of the stories that I lived through. Um, and then a desire to kind of share that wisdom, uh, and to not just share it, but also writing a book forces you to, um, um, try to distill what you think are the most important lessons. And I came up with 10, um, uh, that, you know, I try to apply going forwards and I already have this year. I, I doubt I, we'll, we can go into it later, but I downgraded Netflix at the beginning of the year, even though, even though it was one of the highlighted stories in my book and it was a phenomenal stock for a decade, but I put in that book, you know, when you should sell and, um, uh, and I saw one of those trip actions with Netflix. So I downgraded the stock, um, you know, essentially the equivalent of selling the stock. So I, I, you know, I used the book as a great way to come up with a framework for how to think about stocks and, and I practice what I preach. And I mean, one really interesting term that you, that you use for when to buy these quality stocks is, uh, dislocated high quality. Um, and yeah, I'm curious to know more about that, of course. There's one punchline from the book that I hope people can remember that I want people to most remember. It's DHQ. Now, if you go on the Internet and you search DHQ, I think you'll also see that that stands for Dance Hall Queen. That's not what I'm asking people to remember. I'm asking them to remember dislocated high quality. There's, you know, there's the other one is buy low, sell high. Well, okay, um, yeah, that's that sounds good, too. But what I'm saying is buy low, high quality companies. Um, so I think as a fundamental analyst, and I think that's, you know, I want to step back here. One of the biggest, less simple, you know, brain dead lessons that I've learned over the last 25 years is that fundamentals matter. Stocks can be, get dislocated from fundamentals for a period of time for a variety of reasons, market turbulence, misunderstanding of companies, uh, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, over the long term, the stronger the fundamentals, the better the stock price. Uh, you know, that doesn't always work, but gosh, it works most of the times. I haven't found a case where a, uh, a stock materially outperformed for a substantial period of time, like over a year, that didn't have improved fundamentals. Um, uh, I've seen some companies out. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, for a quarter, sure, I've seen that in even six months or something like that. But generally, I find that the stocks follow fundamentals. So what I try to do as a stock picker is I want to first focus uh, on what I'm going to try to find the highest quality companies I can find. And I laid out these four factors that I screen for companies that are addressing large markets or TAMs, total addressable markets, companies that have got great um, uh, have got a track record or evidence of great product development. If you're looking at tech in high growth areas, so much of it depends on innovation in the space new product, new service innovation. So you're looking for high levels of product innovation. And I really follow consumer tech. My point in the book was you can, you and I can all come up with reasons. Uh, we can, we can do our own due diligence 
just as really as well as any uh, sell-side analyst or buy-side analyst can on a consumer tech company because we can use it ourselves and decide whether the product or the service is getting better or worse over time. Then I look at the third thing I look for are companies with really compelling consumer value propositions. And one of the best ways to really prove that is whether a company has pricing power or not. Netflix showed that they had that in spades for a decade. And that's why their fundamentals got better and their stock got better. And the fourth thing I look for is just really good management teams. I really like founder led companies. And there's a lot of art in figuring out, determining what a really good management team is. Well, I look for consistency in a management team. I do like when the founders uh, stick around and then you look for that evidence. Um, do they show that they can succeed in multiple different you know, areas or verticals? And that was kind of one of the lessons for me on Amazon. And if I just double click on this just for a second, it's, um, you know, Amazon was this purely speculative, speculative long from 1997 until I don't know when 2006, 2007, 2008, somewhere in there, it became, it should have become a core long and it should have become a core long because they showed that they could expand from book retailing online to multiple different uh, retail categories online, and then to rolling out this thing called cloud computing or Amazon Web Services, and then launching this Kindle, this ebook reader. Like those are very different markets. And when they showed they could succeed in very different markets, it should have been a tell that with this management team, there's something special about them, and they can probably continue to innovate in the future. So anyway, I look for those four things: management, uh, market opportunity, level of product innovation, and compelling customer value propositions. I try to find those high quality companies, and then I just wait for them to sell off. And then I add to positions or start positions in those names. So that's, you know, I wait for them to get dislocated because my history of looking at these stocks for a quarter century is all of them get dislocated from time to time. Heck, we just live, we're living through a major dislocation uh, opportunity in the market in the first uh, half of this year. We lived through it in the first half of 2020 because of COVID. Uh, and there's been multiple times when high quality assets will sell off aggressively 20 or 30% or even more, even though you know it's a high quality asset or you think it is. And that's when you you use that as an opportunity to really generate material easy. So one important factor in your book is revenue. And you have a chapter called Revenue Matters More Than Anything. And our interpretation from your book is that we should invest in companies that can consistently post this premium growth, 20% plus, uh, which comes from a big base as well. And this is almost irrespective of short-term profitability. So the question is, how do you judge a company's prospects for long-term profitability and avoid investing in companies that sell $1 for 50 cents and are unlikely to ever be profitable? Well, you know, you're... You, you state the question right. It, it, now, that's um, it's usually, you know, people selling uh, selling dollars for 90 cents, selling dollars for 50 cents. Now, that's that's challenging. And so is selling it for 90 cents. I actually haven't seen companies do that. So just just so we're clear about that. And um, I guess I've also one of the other lessons I've learned, like I've looked at some of these business models. I mean, I had one of the top. Uh, portfolio managers in the country or maybe in the world, you know, stopping the elevator banks at Morgan Stanley back in 2000 and putting his finger in my chest and saying, saying, you know, Amazon's never going to be profitable. I mean, he was, he, he had to be right. I mean, given all the success he had had and, uh, and yet he wasn't. And, um, and I didn't know any better, but as I followed it, I guess one of the lessons I've learned is that scale solves just about everything. 
you know, you get, you do consistent premium revenue growth for a long period of time and you will scale against those fixed costs. And unless your variable cost structure is really upside down, if you really are selling dollars for 95 cents or 90 cents or 50 cents, okay, as long as you're not doing that, you know, uh, revenue growth can kind of solve most business model challenges. And I talk about Uber in the book and Uber Uber was sort of a work in progress when I wrote the book and I sort of thought that they would have enough scale to turn profitable. I didn't know, but I thought they would for a variety of reasons I go into in the book. And sure enough, here we are with more scale now that they finally worked through COVID and they're, and they're running at bookings levels above where they were pre pandemic. They're profitable. They just generated their first free cash flow quarter ever. And, uh, and I thought that would, I thought that would happen and I guessed it would happen. And, it just kind of just to me, it's one more piece of lesson that um, you can invest in unprofitable companies uh, on the belief that they will be profitable one day if you're confident that they can sustain, you know, strong premium revenue growth. And in the book, you also described that many companies and you mentioned Amazon now and, and also in the book, you mentioned them as an example and that during the dot-com bust, they really had to reduce almost all of their growth investments. So how do you think about that now? Is there like a similarity with this current market climate in your view? Eddie, that's a great, great question. The number of companies, um, I just was on a call this morning with a small company called Warby Parker, which is a eyeglass retailer online and offline. And, um, and they, just like many other companies that I've listened to, They've been all in, in, in the mighty Google and Amazon too, uh, and Spotify too. Um, they've all talked about paring down their expense growth or cutting expenses uh, during this uh, period of time. And uh, so I, you know, I what I tried to do, and I've seen companies go through different cycles doing this. So yes, you don't want to be buying stocks when you go into a recession. But you do want to be looking potentially at buying stocks that come out of the recession, having um, optimized their cost structure. And if they've got new growth initiatives, that'll start kicking in, you know, post the, the cycle. So that's, yeah, they, sometimes, you know, the recessions aren't a good thing. But if they, um, if they force companies to be more rational with their costs, I think Airbnb is a great example of this. Uh, I think the COVID crisis, they had to do a 25% workforce reduction and they actually ended up being the most resilient of all travel names. And it made you wonder, well, maybe they were overstaffed to begin with. I think that in fact is true. And, uh, but they're, because of that forced cost rationalization, they're actually going to be the best growth, top line growth and the best bottom line growth company in uh, online travel. I don't know that that would would have been the case if they hadn't had been forced to take down their cost structure because of the COVID crisis. So I want to dig a bit, a bit deeper into the this twenty percent hurdle that you mentioned. We have a lot of uh, value investors listening to this podcast and also growth investors. And uh, I, I just want to know: Is this twenty percent hurdle something you have seen that growth investors typically typically use as as kind of a I mean, if it goes under, then they then they just sell off. Or how do you how do you think about that? I'm going to make two points about twenty percent growth. One is that it's rare, uh, and I, I mean it from scale too. Like I, I don't mean twenty percent growth if you have a hundred million revenue base. I mean twenty percent growth if you're doing a couple billion in revenue. Um, and so twenty percent growth. Let's you know what's GDP growth worldwide? It's two, three, four percent. 
So 20% growth is, that's impressive. I mean, you're growing, you know, uh, 10 times to six, six to 10 times faster than the global economy. You must be doing, you must have something, you may just be purely lucky, but you probably tapped into an interesting growth opportunity. Maybe it's a secular growth opportunity. Maybe you're dramatically taking market share away from other people. But companies that can consistently grow at that rate from scale are rare. When we actually looked at the S&P 500 and screened for what percentage of them have grown um, 20% revenue growth for, you know, uh, for, for two years or more, you know, at any one point in time. It's a single digit percentage. Uh, and that's, and I, you know, that's S&P 500 companies. So that by definition, they're, they're at scale. They're, you know, they're usually yet to be relatively sizable in order to get into that index. So that to me, it's more, it's the output, but it's, but it's an indicator. It's a marker that there's something different about this company that either they're in a great market opportunity. They've got great product innovation. They're dramatically taking market share. So it's a tell for me of, of, something special in the in the company. And again, I want to be careful about that. It's from scale. And then what I also noticed is, so that's the first thing is that it's rare to see companies that can sustain that growth. And so because it's rare, you want to know why they're doing that because there's something special. And then the second thing is the markets generally reward companies that do that. So, you know, when we looked at those stocks of companies that consistently generate that growth, they, they generally, not always, but they generally outperform the market and by a dramatic amount, we'll put the details in our book. So we did, we did put some uh, academic analysis in the book to kind of to show the, the rarity uh, and the, the rarity and the value uh, of, uh, of, of premium growth. Um, people refer to the scarcity value of growth. Yeah, I think that's, um, I, I think people, I think investors are generally willing to pay more for uh for growth because it's scarce uh and uh so anyway that's um and then you know so that helps me find high quality companies doesn't mean you buy any stock that's got any company that's got that kind of growth you do want to factor in uh valuation but i first at first i'd rather i'd rather i guess what i'm saying is i'd rather lose money on high quality companies rather than low quality companies and i think about it this way i'm gonna summarize my investing philosophy, and I may be wrong, but I'm going to summarize my investment philosophy this way. If we're investing in the markets, we're trying to mitigate two risks. Um, we're trying to mitigate, you can't eliminate, but mitigate or reduce fundamentals risk and valuation risk. Fundamentals risk is a management team blows a new, you know, makes a mistake with a new product introduction, or they dramatically lose market share, or they, um, they don't hand, handle their cost structure well. You reduce fundamentals risk uh, by only investing in high quality assets or trying to skew your portfolio to high quality assets. So that's how you mitigate um, fundamentals risk, reduce it, uh, and then you reduce valuation risk, the risk that um, you know, a multiple gets cut in half or gets cut in a third, something material by waiting for stocks to get dislocated, waiting for them to trade below their growth rate on a PE basis. So a, a peg or PE to growth ratio less than one or make it simple. Just wait for a 20 to 30 percent correction in the stock, because even the highest quality names of the last decade, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, they've all had their 20% or much more corrections at some point in time, usually because of a market rollover, but sometimes because of company mistakes. So that's what that's my approach. I'm trying to mitigate those two risks, and I do it by buying DHQs, not dance hall queens, 
but dislocated high quality companies. And you mentioned management as one very important aspect. And you also said in the beginning, you're meeting with Jeff Bezos, for example. So can you tell us a bit more what traits you are looking for? Yeah, this is this is very art, uh, not science. But, you know, you want to see management teams that are consistently in place. Now, uh, a bad management team in place for a long period of time, oh, that's not a good thing. But uh, you want to see companies with relatively low manager turnover. I'd love to see founders still running the company. I'm going to work backwards. So this is this isn't scientific. This is correlation, not causation. But if you look at the biggest tech companies by market cap, um, you'll find that they're pretty much all founder led or they've had founders in there for, you know, a decade or two. When I looked at the top tech companies, I mean, the average tenure of the chief executives of the of the founders was 20 years with the companies. Um, So, you know, that's that's not. That's not scientific analysis, but you know, there's um, you know sometimes we gotta look at the the data and the results and kind of rely on our gut instinct a little bit. I'm doing that this time here. So anyway, that's what I think about. Uh, I'm looking for consistency in management teams. I want to also see. I'm looking for a couple of tells. I've been around managements that are very focused on the quarter, and you know, what is the street? What would the street think if we did this? What would the street think if we did that? And my reaction is, you know, why are you, you should be run your business, you know, to generate, to maximize cash flows, to maximize revenue, to maximize profits and earnings in the long term. Don't focus on the near term uh, dynamics. When I, when I hear management teams focused on the near term dynamics, it's like, are you running your business for, you know, the, the, the three month uh, Wall Street, you know, uh, trading crowd, or you're running it for investors? I think you make more money if you're running it for investors. So that to me is a little bit of a negative tell when I hear managements uh, talk about and, and seem to hyper focus on near term. And that's typically not the owner operators types, or would you say? Yes, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It reminds us when we talked to Bethany McLean about Enron and that they when they have like uh, the stock price charts in the elevators and so on, it's not a good sign. Did they really do that? I read that it was a wonderful book. Um, did they really have stock? I forgot that stock charts in the elevators. Man, that's a that's a great example of a, a company to avoid. I'd forgotten that. And I want to here's a here's your local example, by the way, in Stockholm. You know, I really. Um, uh, you know, Daniel, Eck, you know, I've only, I've met him twice and I barely, and I barely know him. Um, but I appreciate what seems very clear to me to be a long-term orientation. If you listen to him on all the earnings calls. And so I've listened to him now quarterly basis for, you know, for four years or whatever. And uh, so I've heard him whatever, 16 times. And, um, boy, what comes really clear in that is that he's got a long-term vision of the company at the recent investor day. It's all up on the, on the internet. On the Spotify investor relations site, you hear about a person talking about three, five, ten-year, ten-year goals, how the company can change, how they can become an audio platform, not just a music platform, and how they're willing to invest. Now, the stock got punished earlier this year because they were willing to make, um, it, uh, they were willing to invest and bring down profitability this year. But you know, um, the mistake I saw was with names like Yahoo and eBay early on in the in the internet uh, run where I saw those management team take, take up margins and under invest in their business. Uh, I've much greater mistake I've seen with company in terms of long-term shareholder value with companies under investing in their business rather than over investing. And, and I think if you look at this, the, the, the classic examples in my mind, Amazon versus eBay, 
over investor versus an under investor. And, uh, and the company that, um, Overinvested uh, did phenomenally better for shareholders, not necessarily in any one quarter, but over a multi-year period they did. That's what I'm looking for in management teams. Let's dig a bit deeper into the uh, people side of, of, of the of business. Um, having the best employees is often seen as an important advantage, but as you state in the book with examples such as eBay, popularity from employees for certain companies can change quickly. Uh, and Netflix is one company. I... I thought about them because they are famed for only employing the best and, and paying top dollar for that. Do you view this as a durable advantage for a business? Well, um, I mean, I guess the answer is absolutely yes, that, you know, having a really good employee base is a durable advantage. I, I'm not sure I have great insights in the, how management's teams do that. So that's more of a cor- corporate culture. I kind of see the output of it. It's very hard sometimes to know whether the companies have good HR policies. I know that Netflix is is radical in their approach. Um, you know, there are no um, uh, there's no policy on vacation days. Um, there's a wonderful book called The Netflix Rules that came out. It was probably a you know, um, and uh, it probably got a little excessively optimistic or positive about the the culture of the company. Um, so, uh, but, you know, they did point out that, yeah, there's no rules on vacation. You can take vacation whenever you want. Now, if it undermines your productivity, okay. You know, that, um, you, you may be asked to leave at some point. So they, um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the, what the right approach is there. Yes, but absolutely. You know, this, the end of the day, the companies are, they're not inanimate objects. They're all, it's the management teams and the employee base that, that determine how well a, a company does. I do find that success breeds success. And so the more successful a company is stock wise, fundamentally, the better it draws people. I also remember a statement that Eric Schmidt made to me shortly after the Google IPO. And um, this is going to be a great example. I think of the difference between a financial and an entrepreneurial mindset. So I was with a small group of investors with Eric after the IPO. And one of the investors said, hey, Eric, so now that the IPO has come and gone, how are you going to be able to you know, retain talent? Because all those you know, hotshot engineers um, that were looking for that big IPO pop, well, you know, now they're going to go find the next uh, new, new thing, the next hot IPO and join them. And Eric's response was, that's not the way engineers think. Like, They're looking for really great challenges, something that really finds them motivating, something that makes them want to do an all-night, you know, hackathon. Um, uh, and um, and so we actually find that our 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 talent pool, we, we can we um, you know our um, our applicant base, the quality of our applicant base has actually improved materially since our IPO because the word has gotten out about how challenging um, and how exciting the, the the work opportunities are at Google. Anyway, I, I don't know whether he was just saying that and it was a bunch of BS, but the the track records of Google since its IPOs and, and the talent pool that they that they built over time seems to suggest that he was right. So speaking about advantages, the big tech companies, they're often praised for their strong competitive advantages. And that includes network effects, which is... M- often named as maybe the most important one, but you write that uh, network effects are overrated. So can you please expand a bit? Why do you think so? 
Well, that may be overstating it. I, you know, obviously network, network effects are important. It's just that, you know, um, Eddie, I, uh, I had this burning, burning example of eBay. This, this, I mean, I, I, you can go find some old research reports I wrote that I've talked, I'm sure I praised them for their network effects. They had the most buyers, therefore they beget the most sellers, therefore there's more liquidity, the more products on the site, which begets more buyers. Like how could eBay possibly lose? Well, they lost because um, the network effects are really important, but you know, customer service is even more important. Uh, the customer experience and Amazon ended up in the end having a lot more buyers and a lot more sellers. So network effects can give you a temporary advantage, but it's not a permanent advantage. And um, and then I think about, um, yeah, where else? You know, Grubhub is an example of a company that should have benefited from network effects. More buyers, more restaurants, more, uh, you know, which begets uh, more buyers, et cetera. Uh, so there are network effects advantages. Uber has that. I, I think it's kind of hard to see somebody breaking. I mean, they're very strong local network effects. I'm sorry. That's another point, which is that you can have all of the, you can have a really large driver fleet, whatever in San Francisco and a lot of consumers there, but that means nothing to uh, a consumer in Stockholm or in Miami or in London that needs a car service. Um, or wants a ride share. So the network effects can be highly, highly local uh, for, for some businesses. Anyway, I, yeah, maybe it's really the eBay experience that, that made me kind of wonder just how, how, uh, I, you know, network effects seemed in my mind, hearing companies make a lot of pitches. A lot of companies make a lot of pitches over time. seems like people leaned in a little too heavy on their, uh, their network effects. And I just, I just look for companies that really just provide a, an outstanding service to customers. And so there's a little quip in my book about, you know, um, uh, customer value, customer value beats business models. Um, look for, look for great, compelling um, um, uh, value propositions uh, uh, versus great uh, business models. You can have a great business model like eBay did and Grubhub did. They were profitable. They were the profitable leaders of their segment. Uh, and, um, but they didn't have the best customer service and they got displaced and, uh, and the market cap went to the companies with the better customer service. And one way to expand that value proposition is to add another leg to your business. And, uh, in, uh, at Red Eye, we have a model portfolio, which we call our topics. And we have in recent years been given more appreciation to companies with optionalities to expand their business. And you mentioned, for example, Amazon's AWS as perhaps the best example in history of this. So what are your lessons on how to identify a company with optionality? Uh, well, I think this is I think this is relatively straightforward. It's companies that are investing in new growth initiatives. Um, you know, uh, what, what are your other bets? Um, uh, Google has been very specific about it. They, invested in Waymo, an alternative, um, not alternative, uh, in uh, driverless car uh, technology. Uh, what are the other ones? Oh, Facebook's got a massive optionality. Now, options, of course, can expire worthless. Uh, that's why they're called options, and they can, be, they can be worth a lot. But, you know, that's in the metaverse, uh, and they give you wonderful disclosure around that. Amazon hasn't really broken it out, but I think Amazon – it's got a, a bunch of these kind of long-term investments. And they also do a lot of optionality on the cost side in drone delivery. 
Um, but um, uh, I think about um, business, uh, business to business, logistics, um, office supplies, industrial supplies is kind of a little bit of the option value for uh, for Amazon. So yeah, I, I when I when I talk with companies, what I want to hear them talk about is their core business and how they plan to continue to invest in it and grow it, you know, for the next one, two, three years. And then like, it's like you, you, um, and then I want to see that one extra slide. And oftentimes, you know, when these companies go public or they have their investor deck, and you know, I want to see that one extra slide that says long-term strategic, you know, plans or long-term strategic direction or option value. Like, what do you got? What do you, and it's fine if it's going to expire worthless, but, you know, here's your core business. Now, what, where could you go in the future? And I understand that companies and management teams don't necessarily want to disclose everything, but, you know, just give us a sense of what you see as interesting new growth opportunities to go into beyond your core business. And I, I want to go into a really nerdy question from that. Um, as you state, very few internet companies manage to stay dominant over time. And I was just thinking, how is that converted into your DCF models you use to value these kind of companies? What what kind of duration do you count with? And, and how do you think about that? Well, you're right. It does seem like, uh, um, uh, like if I think about the, I guess I should do, if I were to um, go back and look at the, the largest market cap internet companies in 2001, I think Yahoo would be in there, AOL would be in there, and eBay would be in there. And um, Nicholas, you're 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 testing me here. I I'm gonna guess, and this is a, this is factual. We could Google it. I think those actually would be the three largest market cap companies back in 2000, 2001. Would have been eBay, uh, Yahoo, and AOL. I'm pretty certain that's right. If not, they're top five. Somebody can check me on that. And where are they now? So yeah, the, the things can uh, things can change now. The market cap. Uh, it's actually been relatively consistent over the, the market cap leaders have been relatively consistent over the last couple of years. That could change in five years. I can see TikTok um, emerging as one of the top three or four uh, market cap names. I actually have to also see Uber doing that too, um, just given how large the, the TAMs are. I think I went off on a tangent and I think I forgot your question, but it had to do with uh, the the DCFs and the time that, and, the, and the length of time we look at, I, you know, I generally try to have 10 year DCFs um, uh, for all the companies that we, uh, all the companies that we cover. That's interesting. I, I need to ask more about the, the TikTok example. I mean, I'm not using it. Ed is not using it, but we've he- heard co- younger colleagues who use it a lot and, and really a lot. I mean, they spend hours and hours each day on, on TikTok. And many many uh, investors I hear just speak about that it's a it's a Facebook killer, but when I thought about it, it's it's more more or less it's a it's an entertainment killer. I mean, what's what's the impact on Netflix? What's the in- impact on like online mobile gaming companies and and uh, Spotify and and so on? How do you think about that? Well, I think it has enormous implications uh, for companies. So um, short form video has dramatically gained uh, attention. Um, and I forget where TikTok is, but there are over a billion users. Uh, and uh, and then when we look at the time spent per TikTok user per day, that's doubled. Like um, uh, it's gone from like 40 uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, TikTok was around 40 minutes per user per day. Facebook was around 40 minutes per user per day. Instagram was there too. YouTube, 
I think YouTube was uh, a little bit higher. Since then, uh, TikTok's time spent per user per day has more than doubled. It's now 85 to 90 minutes. Facebook and Instagram are both, you know, a little bit higher, like 45 minutes. Um, I think uh, off the top of my head, I think YouTube's closer to 70 minutes per user per day, but that stayed roughly flattish uh, from where it was pre-pandemic. So TikTok, you can just see it in the numbers, the user numbers and the time spent per user. It has just dramatically increased um, its uh, its time. So where did that, so that's about a half an hour. Where did that go? That 30 minutes of time, uh, that more that people spend with uh, with um with TikTok, where did that come from? And I, I assume that I think a lot of it's kind of kill time, kill time entertainment. Um, so it probably, in, in a way, uh, took away from other sorts of uh, other sources of kill time entertainment, like television, like uh, potentially social media, um, maybe YouTube. Although it doesn't really show up in the data, I think it's probably come away from some long form entertainment like Netflix. Um, and other uh, streaming sites, I bet you. I think they probably have been negatively impacted. So yeah, I look at uh, I look at yeah. I, I try to track user trends and engagement trends, whether that's you know wallet shares or the amount of time people spend with an asset or the amount of dollars dollars or currency or euros they spend they spend with an asset. And then when I see these, you know, occasionally you see these things like Facebook. I remember watching those numbers go off the charts, you know, 10 years ago. And I'm sort of seeing the same thing with TikTok now. It's going to be very interesting to follow that development. And coming back to the book and your role as a sell-side analyst, uh, it's not only me and Niklas who have read your book. Most and many of the analysts here at Red Eye, they have also read your book. And we have many analysts around the world also listening to this podcast. So... Many analysts become money managers or start working operationally in a company, for example. So we're curious, what, what is it about the analyst role that you love? What have kept you in the in the business? Well, uh, yeah, I uh, I enjoy the analytical work of it. There's, um, you know, I enjoy the the quantification of it. The, um, uh, it's like three parts of the job. Um, it's the, the it's the um, it's the uh, more analytical, creative analytical, and then the storytelling. How's that? Or communication, storytelling telling sounds, doesn't sound serious enough, although probably that's what it is. But anyway, so the core analyticals, yeah, I, I enjoy trying to find that certitude in an uncertain world, I, you know, like trying to come up with the exact revenue forecasts, um, what kind of earnings, you know, the, putting together that, that 10 year DCF and, and uh, it's wonderful when numbers come out and you create numbers and knowing that. So I, I enjoy the, the certainty. I enjoy the analytical rigor of that. Uh, the creative part of it though, uh, I enjoy just as much, which is, you know, forget the spreadsheets, like what could, how different could Amazon be in five years? Um, what area, what areas could they go into? You know, will will autonomous vehicles really be successful? Like, it, some of these things are just very. There are. It's hard to have good hard answers to them. You have to step back and and, and you, have, you have to put on, you have to be a bit of a psychologist. I don't know, um, a future determiner. Um, like what? Uh, you know, ride sharing is right. What's going to happen to ride sharing when we get autonomous vehicles or will we get autonomous vehicles? And is that going to be good for Uber? Is it going to be bad for Uber? 
Um, so I, I enjoy the creative uh, side of that. You know, like uh, if you have a position in a stock, you should be able, if you're, if you're creative, you should be able to come up, be able to, if you're a bull on a stock, you should be able to articulate the bearish side of the stock just as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, just to, so I, I, uh, th- there's that part of the job that I really enjoy. And, um, and then the third is I just enjoy the communications part. I do enjoy writing. I do enjoy talking about stocks. I, I much prefer discussing with clients um, rather than lecturing to clients uh, and uh, be, uh, the full knowledge that none of us knows the, none of us knows the future. We all have made, you know, major stock picking errors in the past. And, um, and that makes the job exciting. If you got every call right, boy, it'd be boring. Uh, and um, it's, when you, it's when you make the mistakes that you've realized you've got more to learn. And if you didn't have more to learn, then what's the point of doing the job? So anyway, that's what I, um, those are the three things I kind of like about it. Kind of the detailed analytical, the core analytics, the creative analytics, and, um, or the creative thinking, and then the communication of ideas. And how many stocks do you cover and how do you spend your time between those three different uh, topics? Well, it's about, it's probably about equal amongst those three things. And we cover about 40 uh, stocks, 40 uh, consumer internet names. And you're a team of? We're, we're six and we're ba- seven. We're based in uh, uh, San Francisco. Although one of our, uh, one of the associates working with me, will be leaving in uh, in a month. He, he's uh, having to relocate to Los Angeles, the poor guy. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and he's got a great, wonderful opportunity with uh, a buy side firm there. Uh, you know, if you're going to be a long only investor, the single best buy side firm you could probably go to is the one that he's going to. So I'm super thrilled for him, which means we are looking to hire. But there is a qualification. You have to be. You have to be willing to be based in San Francisco. I know that's a hard, hard challenge for people, but we are looking to hire. Good. Spread the word. And uh, I mean, from your book, it's clear that while you're an analyst, I mean, you think as an investor. What benefits do you think that brings? Well, uh, I guess it. I guess it. It grounds you because you can run through all the deepest analytics you want. Um, you know what? And uh, well, clients clients pay for and clients appreciate a variety of things. They do appreciate deep analytics. They appreciate people who can pick stocks. They appreciate analysts who can help arrange introductions to companies. They appreciate analysts who can put together really good conferences or unique events. Um, we're hosting a panel in a few weeks. I found three uh, legal scholars that can talk about this Elon Musk Twitter. Uh, case that's going to go in, in front of this Delaware judge. I mean, it's pretty esoteric about uh, M&A litigation and and uh, what's the expression? Um, uh, oh, there's some legal term for system process. I forget what it is. Which uh, that's which is exactly why I brought together these legal experts. So which uh, so I created a, a, a an event that would be buy-siders could do on their own, but I'm making it easier for them and they may not know some of the experts I can tap into. Anyway, so um, I uh, what uh, you, you want to, yeah, you want to, ours is a, custo- a client service job. And, um, but I do think having said all that, the more, you know, at the end of the day, investors, um, if they have bad stock picks, they won't be clients of yours in the future because they'll be out of a job. And uh, it's very clear that uh, that side of the business. And so at the end of the day, you know, all this stuff helps. But if I could specifically help a client 
you know, locate a stock that's going to go higher or lower if they're short the stock, uh, then, um, yeah, that's, I, so that's my grounding at the end of the day, I want to create all of these events. I want to provide great client service. I want to provide all the flow and the data points I can, but I want to make sure the most important that it all at the end of the day hooks to a stock call. And so every time I you know do a meeting, I'm ending up, I'm leaving a meeting with for you and your approach and your portfolio. These are the three ideas that I think would be most relevant for you. I think they're the best ways for you to make uh, make money. So that that's the grounding that putting an investor's head on helps with. You're giving us ideas here to clone. Um, so I mean, how do you invest privately? Are you allowed to invest privately? Or yes, yes, but there are restrictions. I learned this the hard way. Um, my I have a I have a 15 year old son who is doing a, a stock picking um, challenge. Uh, at his school and he asked me for a stock and I said, well, why don't you tell me what, 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 uh, what companies, what services do you use the most? And he thought about, I said, well, I use DoorDash a lot, which of course made me go back and check my credit card statement to see, you know, how bad it was. And, um, uh, but I said, well, look, DoorDash is a publicly traded company. If you use it a lot, you'll then intuitively have a good sense of whether the service is getting better or worse. Like, do you find that when you do your orders, do they come to you most often within 30 minutes? Um, do you find that the restaurants, the food that you want to, uh, you know, order from is there? Are they, are they losing restaurants? Or are they adding restaurants? You know, they've started adding in new things like you can order from convenience stores and alcohol stores. Don't do that, son. Uh, but you can do it from, you know, uh, other areas. And, um, and uh, you know, so I, uh, so that's what he ended up pitching DoorDash, but, uh, but that's, um, um, so, uh, anyway, what, what I, what I forgot was that that meant that there was a member of my household that now owns two shares of DoorDash because that's what we bought two shares of DoorDash. But every time I do an interview, I have to mention that my family has a financial stake in one of the companies I'm talking about. Therefore I have a conflict of interest because my son owns two shares of DoorDash. So I made a mistake in not telling them to no, don't buy the stock anyway. So I can yes, I can I can buy the stocks I invest in. It's just that once I buy my and I, I maybe it's a good idea to do that. I just generally I just don't buy individual stocks. I've got uh, I'm fully invested in the market, but uh, I don't buy individual stocks because I just don't want just don't want to create conflicts. Because because yes, I get it. If I own a bunch of Amazon, am I am I is it going to at all impact my thinking about when to downgrade Amazon? Be lying if it if it didn't at somehow at some level create some sort of conflict. And to continue on your example with uh, DoorDash, in the book you also give many examples of products that you or your family have bought and tested, like Stitch Fix clothes, clothes and uh, Blue Apron meals. And you also mentioned these Snap spectacles that never got got used. But how do you use those insights from your own experience and not become overconfident and rely too much on those? Well, and I, I'm sorry, at the very least, you need to be able to be familiar with the service so you can explain it to, to clients. So, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I can talk usefully with clients about Stitch Fix. There's a lot of clients won't use the services, so I can at least explain to them, you know, in in detail how it works, when you get your when you get your clothing shipments, what how good the service is. I'll just give you my own personal experience, but at least at least it's it's um yeah i think it's really important for investors and analysts to uh, intimately know the services and the companies that they cover which means 
that you'll never, you'll probably never see me cover Match or Bumble, the online dating companies, because I because my wife would find that odd, and uh, and so I'm just not gonna you know so I'm just not gonna cover those companies because to me it's really important that I I use the service, so I do use Uber and I also use. Lyft and I use DoorDash and um, and I make it a point to go on Snap, uh, you know, regularly. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, anyway, you you gotta you gotta go in there and and um, and uh, you gotta eat the dog food in order to figure out whether it's worth it or not. Yeah, it can be dangerous to test out the products. One of our analyst colleagues he wanted to try out the Swedish Match products when he was researching it, and then he got got hooked on the tobacco. So. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, in because um, we talked to, with Avner Mandelman in episode 22 about his book, The Sleuth Investor. Are you familiar with him and the book? No. Did you, did you, do you recommend it? I definitely recommend it. It's quite underfollowed. I don't think many people have, uh, have read it, but he's a fascinating person. And uh, he talks a lot about the importance of not just sitting behind your desk and doing like reading but you actually have to go out in the real world and you have to talk to customers and suppliers and competitors and the CEOs neighbors and all those physical evidence and he calls this sleuthing which he see as a more structured version of uh, Phil Fisher's uh, scuttlebutt approach so what do you think about this how much are you out in the in the real world I'm looking at his book now um, he's this, uh, on uh, on Amazon I I absolutely agree with it. The, the advantage, by the way, of the covering internet companies is I don't need to go outside. I can just stay right here and uh, and just spend time on the sites. So I, yeah, I I push that with all the people I work with. Uh, I mentioned this company, Warby Parker. It's a small company, and it's the top of mind to me because they had an earnings report this morning. But I went and um, you know I bought some. I bought a pair of eyeglasses at Warby Parker. I went into the store. And uh, I asked the person a bunch of questions and I tried on, I tried on something and ended up buying it. I don't know if I can expense that should because it's a business expense. But anyway, I did not expense it. I also then bought a pair of glasses from them online, too, because they have a program where they'll send you five glasses and you can pick one. And um, I wanted to try that. out. So, yeah, you have to you have to do that. Uh, And uh, and sometimes it's tough. I cover this company called First Dibs, which sells very high end price furniture like um and and uh jewelry and uh, art and like you know it's five thousand dollars okay so i didn't that's one where i did not purchase anything on the site but i do go and just look at it and just to just to see like you know is this interesting and can i see my can i see why a consumer would really like this service or wouldn't like it so yeah i, I think uh, i think afner's absolutely right about that and something you also mentioned in the book is that you conduct user service with consumers to understand the value proposition, right? Can you mention some example of that, how you use it? I do that a lot. Um, I did that with Netflix for 12 years, quarterly user surveys in the U.S. And we also did it in other international markets. And uh, yeah, if you look at the data that we just you know, dragged over the captured over the years that you saw rising satisfaction with Netflix. You saw a rising percentage of people who use Netflix. Uh, when you ask people what was the best service out there in terms of the quality or the content that you could get on streaming services, Netflix always ranked number one. By the way, then you also started to see that survey data start to start to mellow out or moderate in 2018 and 2019. And then what happened is COVID came and, and was a huge boost to the company. But you start to see that moderation 
prior to COVID. And, um, uh, and so, um, yeah, so I, I definitely use that. I use that with uh, Amazon. And, uh, you know, we've for 10 years, I've asked people in an annual survey, you know, rank order all the, where do you shop online? And um, wh- wh- which sites are best for price? Which sites are best for convenience? Which uh, price can select, and which sites are best for selection? And we just track that over time. And I, I think, you know, doing a one-time survey is pretty useless. But having a, a series that you can look at and look at the trends over time, that is invaluable. And so and, and I, it's helpful for me because I look at consumer companies. Uh, and so, uh, you know, consumer tech companies. And so don't just, you know, you get your own uh, experience, but then get that survey work, get a couple of thousand people and um, and then track that over time. And boy, that can be hugely insightful. That that kept me as a bull on Netflix's stock, even though they went through some major disruptions, the shares did, and were dislocated several times. That kept me as a bull on Netflix's stock for a good uh, for a good decade. And has kept me as a bull on Amazon stock for a um, uh, for a good decade, too. It's really a good edge, I can understand. But is there any examples of where you have been misled by such surveys? Yes. And that comes with, um, here's a tough one. Uh, Stitch Fix was probably a call I got. Well, Stitch Fix is a call I got wrong. Uh, I wrote about it positively in the book. but um, And a company called Zoo Lily uh, is a great example of this. So here's the tough call, which is you can survey, if you survey existing users of a relatively new service and you find very high satisfaction scores, great. You know, that may well be a good long, if you find low satisfaction scores, okay, that's it, you know, I'm done. Um, but you can find high satisfaction scores. Then you have to, then you have to answer some of these tougher questions of, well, how do you know that the first 3 million customers weren't the only customers? How do you know that, you know, the early, that like, they just won't go beyond the early adopters? And that's where, that's where the survey work can't really help you that much. Um, there's a, like, yes, you can find that the first three million are happy. That this is what happened with Zulily. They got a, they they just had skyrocketed up to three million users, and then bam, they stopped there. Same thing with Stitch Fix, by the way. They got the four million users, and bam, they stopped there. And that's where you have to kind of law, draw on logic a little bit. Like maybe that Venn diagram of people that are really willing to spend high retail prices for boxes of shipments of clothing to your house. Or your home, maybe that's not as big as as you think it is. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Sur- you can survey the current users. Um, you can also survey people who've used the service and, and no longer use it. Uh, um, it's harder to get insights into the people, the potential customers. That, that's that's that that's the harder thing to do. And the question about uh, being an analyst, and I mean. You have to more or less have an official view on every stock you you follow, and uh, that causes, I mean, several emotional challenges, of course, which I guess you have realized many times. I realized it at, at well as well. I mean, you have to answer for the for the investor base sometimes, and maybe you can have problems with with company management and and so on. But thinking about that, what are your most common biases? Oh, I've, uh, I've made a mistake of I've generally overstayed my welcome with stocks, um, which is actually one of the reasons I'm really glad I wrote the book because it really helped me get out of Netflix uh, earlier this year. And it's possible we come back to Netflix, you know, uh, always, always stay open minded about uh, stocks. But but yeah, I've generally 
ended up sticking with companies longer than I should have. That's that's one of, that's been one of my biases. And speaking about Netflix, and and we have got into a few companies, but let's get into a, a few more specific companies to to illustrate your teachings. Uh, for myself, I own a few of the ones that, that you are covering: uh, Meta, Spotify, and and Wix. And and looking at the long t- term drivers for these stocks, for Meta, the the move to digital adver- advertising continues. Uh, Spotify from radio to streaming. Wix from all businesses needing a, a digital presence, all founder-led uh, with uh, good or great management teams. Growth has, has slowed in all cases this year, but uh, from really strong comparables. And uh, the question is, are, are these companies DHQs in, in your view? I think so. Um, let me start with Spotify. I, I think so. And that's also one where we've got seven years of survey data we have seen Spotify gain more share on both Android and Apple devices. And it's now become the leading music streaming service on Apple phones. That wasn't the case five years ago or four years ago, but that's changed. So uh, uh, is it is it high quality? Well, it's high quality in terms of it's the global leader in music streaming, at least for now. Uh, and it emerged that way. And um, I think through a lot of good, really good uh, product innovation, too. Um, is it high quality? Um, the challenge with um, Spotify has been, there were two major questions when they went public. Could they survive this competitive onslaught taking on Google, Apple, Amazon, um, uh, Deezer to a little extent and Pandora to a little extent? Could they, could, they, could, they, could they survive that competitive onslaught? Yes, they did. They gained share versus other services. The second question was, could they prove their business model? And their revenue base doubled in four years, but their gross margins didn't change at all. And uh, 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 boy, that that tells you that there's means this business model doesn't scale. I mean, your 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 revenue doubled, but your gross margins didn't go up. Like there's and your and your your and your even your operating margins didn't change either. Like you've got no leverage in this business. That sucks. And uh, people were always concerned about the fact that the labels. You know, this is a company that had a very concentrated supplier base, like three music labels, um, uh, you know, account for 80% or whatever of their, of their sales, of their, of their revenue. That, that doesn't sound good. Uh, but, um, uh, but I think we got really good evidence finally this year that when we found out from new disclosure at their investor day, that their core music margins actually have expanded a couple of hundred bips. What's depressed or held in check their gross margins has been all their investments in newer areas like podcasting, which our survey work suggested probably is the right area to invest in because that's reached a tipping point with a lot more people listening to podcasts like us all now. Um, so um, anyway, so yeah, I, I think it is high quality. I don't think the market views it that way. I think it is. That means I've got a differentiated point of view. It means if I'm right, there's a lot of upside to the stock. And uh, yeah, and it's definitely dislocated. The stock uh, is trading. Uh, where are we here? Uh, Spotify is. Um, uh, where is Spotify? It's uh, it's off. I don't know. Fifty percent year to date. Am I right? But yeah, forty eight percent. Hey, I got it right. Forty eight percent a year to date. So yeah, in my book, that's that that qualifies as dislocated. Um, so yeah, I put it in the DHQ camp. I do like it as a stock, and I think about. 
I also think there's something else here, and this goes in getting into being in the investor's mindset. If you just give me one minute on this, it's um, next play. That's the expression I talk about with everybody I, I work with. Um, and it's uh, it comes from a basketball coach at Duke University who, when his players would make a mistake during a game, he'd shout at them, next play. And it's, you know, you made the mistake. We'll talk about it later. Focus on the next play. And it's the same thing with investors like, you know, uh, Spotify stocks up 50%. That means that that doesn't really mean a lot to what the next move is. I mean, it tells you it's dislocated, but, but, um, uh, and we can spend a lot of time describing why this stock was down that much, but what's going to change next? Like the, the, um, that's one of the things I think I got out of the trap of is spending too much time thinking about what happened to the stock in the past, the run it's had or the fall it's had, and not thinking about what's going to happen to the stock next. And if there's something new, if there's a new catalyst, then, you know, the, the direction of the stock is going to be, could be dramatically different, positive or negative uh, coming up. So anyway, that's a simple thing. It's, it's such a trap as an investor, as an analyst to spend time looking at what happened in the last six months and not thinking about what could change in the next six months. What's the next play on the stock? Cause that's what's, what happens in this next play is going to, is going to help determine the outcome of the game. We already know what happened in the last quarter or the last period. Um, anyway, a little bit of a tangent there. Sorry. No, really interesting. And on uh, on Meta and and yeah, we can start with Meta maybe because we got a lot of questions about that. Yeah, I'll just stick with Meta. So we still have the large, the two largest social media platforms in the world. Well, that could change with. Um, with uh with TikTok soon but facebook and instagram you do have a high margin business you know that you generate 30 percent plus operating margins they generate a lot of free cash flow which means that gives them options either to return it to shareholders maybe for acquisitions they certainly can invest all they want in um in the metaverse um so it's and it got a lot of a lot of cash on the balance sheet so they have a lot of financial firepower uh, they're still the leading asset, highly profitable business. I think this company's actually been pretty good with innovation. I like the fact that it's a founder-led company. Uh, and I think Mark Zuckerberg is one of those who, he's got that long-term orientation. Maybe he's completely wrong about the metaverse, but you know he's had pretty good product insight, vision insight in the past. Um, I don't think that's changed. He does seem to be very long-term oriented. So it, to me, in many ways, there's a lot of really, I think the value proposition is wonderful. Sometimes we forget that, but value proposition of Facebook and Instagram are these are free services uh, and they're wonderful for both users and for advertisers. So high value proposition, pretty good innovation uh, and um, uh, and large market opportunities and uh, a founder that has made his mistakes when it comes to public relations, but not not when it comes in terms of running the business, I don't think. So I, yeah, it's definitely into my, my mind of DHQ. The stock's trading like 13, 14 times earnings. And it's one of those where the risk reward here, I think, is highly asymmetrical. Like there's just a heck of a lot of upside. They start showing revenue growth acceleration because they develop a post-privacy ad attribution model, because they better monetize reels, their short form video, uh, because we get beyond this advertising recession. It's like three factors that's set up for a revenue growth acceleration. And with that business model, we get margin expansion. This thing can re-rate in a heartbeat. Uh, I don't know which quarter it is, but 
But I think it's one of these next couple of quarters, just like we had an unlock on Amazon stock this last quarter. I think we can have that on Facebook stock in one of the next two or three quarters. So the next play on Facebook, I think it's much more likely to have a big upwards move. And that's why I like this. And uh, I mean, having having looked at, at these stocks for a while, uh, I mean, for example, I mentioned Wix, but also, I mean, I know that you cover Shopify and both of them are, are quite, I mean, some of the drivers are actually increased penetration of, of uh, e-commerce. Um, and at least my view is that part of this is, is quite uh, like a, a temporary um, shift from, from more um, e-commerce to, to maybe more physical trading. And, and also, of course, with the inflation, people shop less. And I mean, s- part of it is actually macro driven, in my view. How do you how do you distinguish? I mean, issues that you think are are more like short term macro driven from uh, the company specific uh, issues of these names. I mean, do you see any specific company specific issues that really worries you about about some of these companies? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I think there are company specific issues. Um, uh, Shopify, in particular, I'm not sure. I don't think I don't view that as DHQ. Um, uh, it could be in the future, uh, and they've had a very innovative approach. The one thing that bothers me the most about them, I haven't outperformed on the stock, is this big move in the shipping and fulfillment. Uh, and, you know, this, that's a real – if they can get this down, it'll, it'll be a really positive tell for that management team. But that's a very different set of competencies. They can be wonderful at software, but, you know, handling logistics and managing warehouses, like you're talking about operational logistics – that's a very different set of challenges. And I'm not sure that's the right move for them. I would think that they'd be better off doing that in partnership rather than trying to vertically integrate to do it. So, and I've been pretty public in saying that in, in writing that. Uh, there are assets that, you know, like I'm very cautious of eBay. I've had a hold or been critical of for, for quite some time. Um, Let's see, uh, you know, and I do, I can, you know, make big distinctions between companies. I much prefer Uber to Lyft, much greater market share, more option value in terms of international and uh, delivery in addition to, to ride sharing. Um, so anyway. And for the last part of every episode, we talk a bit about books because we love reading and this is what the podcast is about. And we heard you say in, uh, in your podcast with the Value Walk that you are a fan of reading biographies and history but you didn't mention some of your favorites. So can you say some titles? Uh, you know, a couple of the books that I think were really helpful for me in terms of investment wise um, was um, Black Swan. Is it Nicholas Nassim Taleb? Uh, and um, what I, um, what I just really appreciated about that is uh, uh, I think a completely accurate point of view that, uh, um, that there can be dramatic surprises in the future and that you need to be prepared for them. That sounds so cliched, but we just lived through this with COVID. And um, so it's always like uh, the realization that 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 uh, fundamental trends could turn dramatically different than what you expect. Uh, and that those who are super confident that they know the future, um, uh, those, are, those people can be very dangerous. <laughs> So I guess I enjoyed that. I still think Peter Lynch's book, the classic book, is a wonderful. I mean, the examples in there are, you know, a bit out of date or wouldn't be known by a good number of uh, young readers today. 
but I just thought the way he approached stocks and like there's uh, the idea of doing your own sleuthing work. Uh, I think that that that's that also in uh, Lynch's book. I think that's a, that's a definitely a, 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 a one I would recommend too. And oh, the the book, the other book I thought was Freakonomics. So, and this is a wonderful book uh, that with one simple example in there that always rings true to me. And that is, especially as analysts, you know, there's such a tendency to analyze what we can find, um, uh, analyze what where the data is rather than stepping back and saying, well, what sh- if I had access to all data in the world, what would I want to, what would I want to find out rather than, Hey, we've got access to this data. So let's analyze that. Uh, it's um, it, I think it, the expression in the book or the, the story in the book, it's a, you know, common fable about the, the drunk man that you find in the alley. Who's, who's um, looking for his lost keys and he's looking underneath the streetlight. And somebody said, oh, did you lose your keys here? And he said, no, no, they're, they're, I lost them somewhere else. Well, why are you looking here? Well, this is where the light is. And uh, so it's just a reminder to us, like when I put together research projects and I think about, you know, um, uh, what what would be interesting research projects to do on an Uber and Amazon and Netflix? I say, let's step back and like, what would be the most interesting things to test? You know, to, to you know, if I find this to be a yes, I want to be more confident about Amazon. If I find it to be a no, like what are the things are that we can test? And then let's see whether we can find the data or not. And by the way, if the data isn't there you know, or it isn't easy to get, that means our research can be even more valuable if we can come up with an answer to the question. Uh, you know, the harder a project is, that means it's, uh, it's, uh, it's harder to, to find out that we should also be. Uh, humble about the conclusions that we draw, but we know that we're a- adding more value. So anyway, that was another, those are kind of th- uh, two or three investing books I, I, or books that really help, help me in my thought process when it comes to being an analyst. So Mar- Mark, thank you so much for, for this conversation. It's been great. And uh, also, I mean, I learned a lot from, from reading your book and I recommend it to, to everyone I know and, and especially all investors and, and of course, sell-side analysts. Um, do you have something more you want to add up before we finish up? No, I, I very much appreciate the time today, Nicholas and Eddie. I, I really enjoyed this. I loved uh, writing a book. Uh, it was kind of a labor of uh, love for me. And um, uh, so I very much appreciate you giving me the chance to, to talk about it. And I'm sure that if I were to write this book again in, in three years, I'd probably have a bunch of changes to it. And that makes it exciting. Um, so I'm always open to any feedback, uh, and um, uh, but I just appreciate the chance to talk with you about it today. Great. And, and where can our audience follow your work and, and find the book? Well, it's available on Amazon and it's in public bookstores. Uh, Nothing But Net, uh, published by McGraw-Hill. And uh, there's, there's also an audiobook version. The movie is not yet out, though. We're, we're negotiating the, uh, the, 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 the actor rights. I'm kidding about that. And we can find you on we can find you on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and all the other services you follow. <laughs> yes, you actually you actually can. I but but my professional opinions are you know are just uh, for institutional investors or clients and member core ISI. But um, but yeah, the, but the book is the book is for everybody. Okay, thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. 
Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.